All right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab those and turn with me to 1 Corinthians, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, man, it feels a little weird not to be saying Colossians, doesn't it? Uh, we've been tracking through for four or five months now uh, through the letter of Colossians, and so we're finished with that. Uh, we're going to start um, a short, short look and a survey look at this letter that Paul's writing to the church here in Corinth. And um, so we're only going to spend about four weeks in this letter, and if you look and do the math, at the chapters in Corinthians, and you do the math of how many chapters are in Colossians and how long it took us, you guys are really nervous right now. <laughs> for Corinthians, it's significantly longer, and we're only doing it in four weeks. Uh, you have every right to be nervous, so as I say every week, hope you brought some snacks, because uh, we may or may not be here for a long time. So I'm trying to cover three chapters today. What we're going to do, though, the book does lend itself to a kind of more of an overview look. So typically what we try to do here is to go verse by verse uh, through books of the Bible and take small kind of chunks and just kind of dig around in there a little bit. We're not going to be able to do that uh, this morning or in the weeks to come as we're surveying uh, this letter to the church at Corinth. But what we do want to do is do what Paul is doing here. So we're going to look at the occasion of this letter. What is happening here with this church of Corinth? Why is this in the Bible? What's going on? And we're going to look at some of the things that Paul addresses here. But before we do that, we've got to know something about the context and the people to whom he's writing. And what I love about the Bible, we said this last week, but the Bible is not written uh, like a fairy tale book is not written as myth. This is a real city. This is a real church, real people with real issues. Uh, so he's writing in a particular context here. So these aren't just arbitrary principles. He's writing in response to real life things that are going on. And so just for you today, as you maybe live this week and you wonder walking in here if God really is good, like we just sang, uh, you're wondering if all of these claims of Christ and the scriptures have anything to, at all to say about your everyday life. I think what we testify, even by what the scriptures are, is to say, no, no, faith in Jesus really is everything. Well, we're going to see throughout Corinthians, and I would argue really the whole of scripture argues for this, but especially Paul here in this letter is going to say the cross of Jesus Christ um, ought to be, must be central. To everything that we do, it is, um, he is the answer. So he's writing to people at the city called Corinth. And Corinth is, if you know anything about uh, ancient history, man, it is a wicked, wicked city. So all kind of large cities kind of get the rep of being wicked and godless. Corinth definitely kind of sets the bar of what it means to be a wicked city. They were a port city and very diverse. A lot of people kind of come in just as port cities are today. A lot of people from a lot of walks of life. But they are known for their pagan worship. Uh, idols everywhere, false god worship out the wazoo, if you will, and they're worshiping all these false gods, especially the god of kind of sexual immorality. And if that's not a kind of a, a highlighting of our culture today, uh, even so much that temple prostitutes would come in and, and, and just sexually immoral in the middle of the temple in, in an act of worship to um, the false gods of that day, a wicked, vile, vile city. And so we see that this church that Paul's writing to got its beginning because Paul, on his missionary journeys, starts preaching the gospel into this wicked city. Um, going into whatever city you want to put into that category of our culture today. Um, and in our area, of course, it's nothing compared to big cities, but you go downtown where people are just a little more weird. Can you get a witness? Anybody hang out downtown? Downtown folks are just more weird than the rest of Johnson City. It's true. It's why I hang out. I feel at home with my people down there. Um, but you go down to downtown, all these secular mindsets, pluralistic society, no truth, and he begins to preach the gospel um, to the people there. And I want us to read in Acts 18, uh, verse 1 and then 8 through 11, just to get a, a, a picture of the narrative, kind of the documentary, if you will, 
of when, how Paul plants this church. Um, verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. It's a miracle that the gospel changes lives. As the gospel is preached, people in this wicked, vile city turn from that sin and put faith in Christ. Uh, verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Which implies, if you read the context there, we skipped some for the second time. Paul is beginning to be afraid for his life because the city doesn't want to hear this gospel. It's countercultural. It's in the face of everything they believe, every piece of their worldview. Paul is pushing back against it in, in grace, but also with truth. And so he's beginning to be afraid. So God gives him to in a vision and says, Do not be afraid of them, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Here's why. So Paul, keep doing this task of proclamation. So we want to know what it means to be on mission in the midst of a city who doesn't care about Jesus. And it means a lot of things, but it can't be less than this. That He says, hey, don't stop using your words to point to Jesus. It's not enough just to be their buddies. It's not just enough to be their friends. Like, you've got to go and you've got to proclaim the gospel. All right. Do not be silent. Why, verse 10? So, so God, Really? This is dangerous. They don't, they don't care what I have to say. Here's the reason that God gave him, for I am with you. Kind of harkens back to the Great Commission. As we are going to all nations, making disciples, preaching the gospel, the promise is that, lo, Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. You see this carrying out here. As Paul's obedient to the Great Commission, there's a promise of the presence of God. And no one will attack you to harm you. doesn't always give that promise, but this particular case, he did. He said, Paul, no one's going to hurt you. For I have many in this city, who are my people. Man, what a beautiful uh, promise of God. That God says, yeah, there's a lot that's lost. And all you can get lost up in everything that's not happening. But Paul, I have purchased salvation for these people. And you're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel. And you trust the results to me. I have a plan for this city. All right, so you see that. And then he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So this church is planted. By the way, we believe in church planting. So in a couple of weeks, uh, one of our church planters is going to be here and preaching about church planting, giving us an update of what God's doing in Portland. Uh, just, just as an aside, we see that happening throughout the New Testa- Testament. And as we preach the gospel, the churches are planted. It's not the other way around. We don't go out to plant churches um, and hope the gospel kind of gets in there a little bit. We go preaching the gospel, living on mission in this city, and the result is as people come to faith in Christ, we disciple them and churches are then formed. That's what we're doing in Portland. That's what we've done here in this city. We continue. We pray. It multiplies out. And this is what Paul has given his life to. But now, a lot of years has passed. I think some estimates, rough estimates, would say about four or five years. So Paul, in Corinth, he wants to leave and bounce because they're crazy. He's like, this city is nuts. And God goes, no, 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 stay. He stays for a year and a half and then leaves. And now about four to five years has passed. And he's writing this letter. This is not the first letter he's written to them, but this is um, probably the second or third letter that he's written to this church. And he's writing this church filled with immature Christians. We read that earlier. We're going to see it again in just a second. Immature baby Christians. And he's in the midst of this wicked, wicked city in Corinth. And you're going to see all of these things that have happened. So what we just read, um, I think in, where is it? Oh, goodness, um, it's in there somewhere, uh, chapter 1, where he's getting reports from Chloe, Chloe's people. Who's Chloe? She's a leader in the church. And he's, he's I'm hearing from Chloe's people that there are issues in your church. Your church is a mess. 
Uh, your church is an absolute mess. And I'm writing in response to these issues. And so as we read 1 Corinthians, I invite you to grab one of the cards out at the hub. Um, if you're not doing anything in your own Bible reading plan right now, I pick that up and we have a Bible reading plan that kind of lays out 1 Corinthians for the month of July. We'd love for you to track through this with, you, with us on your own time with Jesus. Uh, but we're going to see throughout the book of Corinthians is that Paul is addressing, we don't see a list of the issues, but we see his responses to the issues. And we kind of know what he's saying to these people. So he's hearing about a report here, and he's going to address the report. And so we're going to look at different ones of those um, throughout the week. But what we're going to see is whatever issue is happening in this local church, and there are plenty of issues. And let me just push the pause button and say every single church throughout human history has had issues. And all God's people said, amen. Wow, that was a little louder than I was expecting. Man, Larry, goodness. Um, it's, it's true amen and i've said this before like we i've had some of my deepest hurts and wounds in the local church and so if you're here and you're not a believer and you're coming and kind of peeking in over the fence uh we in no way you just heard the exuberance from our church here uh, that we are well aware that we don't have it all together all right amen church family members here we do not have it all together we are sinful people and we are messed up and we're jacked up and we have issues corinthians have issues and what we're going to see by God's grace, is that we can learn a lot from their issues uh, as well. But let's just, let's just own the fact that let's just, we call them issues and answers this series, but the issues aren't just behavior problems. Um, we could call it sin and answers, just probably more accurately and biblical. These issues aren't just kind of, we got some personality quirks. No, these are roots of sin uh, in every local church. It's just it's the nature of the reality. But what we're going to see here is that Paul is going to address the issue head on and do so in grace and in truth. But he's doing so to say Jesus is the answer. So if you grew up in Sunday school, you could always, any question, you could probably answer Jesus or the Bible, right? And it's going to be the answer. It's going to be true for this series. So if I ask you what's the answer, you can go, Jesus, and you'll be right. That's a good thing, right? It's trying to help you out a little bit. Um, Jesus is the answer. These issues, we're going to see those. But what's the answer? And there's going to be a thread that pulls. So I'm going to spend a lot of time here um, this morning in chapter 1 and 2 um, to show us, because really, if we don't get this foundation, every other answer that he's going to give the people of this church and by proxy for us today flows from this. We're going to see the cross of Christ at the center of our lives, at the center of our church as a faith family, at the center of our mission is the only hope of any way overcoming the issues that arise within any local church, that Jesus is the answer. So this morning we're going to look at division as a result of their immaturity um, and show that God's wisdom is in the cross of Christ and how the gospel um, approaches our division. So we'll see that this morning. But then next week we're going to look at sexual immorality. So one of the issues of that church was just blatant, unrepentant sexual immorality. So we're going to look at church discipline as an answer and what that means and what how god holds up marriage and holds up what he says to singles uh that's going to be uh next week i'm really excited about looking at a high view of marriage from first corinthians maybe from a, uh, an angle we haven't looked at uh as a faith family yet and i'm excited about that um, then christian liberties how do we use how do we operate within the gray areas of our faith where there's not a black and white wrong or right answer so things like how do we look at alcohol or other things in the church? For these people, it was meat sacrificed to idols. But how do we, as a body of Christ, approach uh, Christian liberties, to give up our liberties for the sake uh, of others? And then uh, we'll see, uh, lastly, the spiritual uh, gifts. They all had these spiritual gifts, 
and they're using them for themselves. And Paul's going to say, the aim of your life and the aim of all these gifts is love. So love, that's the marriage chapter that we read at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to take a look at that um, as well. So that's where we're headed. In the middle of that, we'll have our church planner, uh, Corey Sanders, come from Portland, Oregon, uh, to preach to us uh, right in the middle of, of July as well. So I'm excited about jumping in. But today, let's look at the foundation of what's going on in this local church. Uh, and ultimately, what we're going to see here is the, it's, the, it's the issue of all the other issues. It's the issue of pride. It's the issue of pride. So let's just jump in. Uh, we read parts of these texts in our reading earlier, but I want us to look at it again. First uh, Corinthians 1, verse 10. Buckle up. You think I was talking fast before. It's about to get faster. All right. Verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. Is that possible <laughs> in a local church? Well, that's the standard that he sets for us. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So just pause. We're going to keep reading. But this is the standard. This is the expectation for any local church is that we're to be one because Jesus is one. That we're to have this, go in the same direction, have the same mind, to think the same way, to make decisions the same way. Even in all of the diversity that is in this room, we are supposed to be united. No division at all. So Paul just assumes this. He doesn't defend it and just says, hey, you should not be divided. So why do we see so much division so often in the local church? We're going to peer into some of those reasons. Let's keep reading verse 11. We're going to see that their selfishness is what created this division. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. There's the verse that I was looking for earlier. Verse 11. Um, That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is, is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Paulus. Or I follow Cephas. Or Cephas is another name for Peter. One of the apostles of Christ. Disciples of Christ. Or I follow Christ. So here's what's happening. Is that this young, immature church, uh, Paul had planted the church. And some of them said, hey, we're on Team Paul. Kind of like the Twilight thing, Team Edward, whatever. It's like that. Like, we're on Team Paul. Paul is the one that led us to Jesus. We are following Paul. And then you had this, had Apollos, and he was the Greek pastor that was very smooth with his words. He was very eloquent. He was um, kind of a philosophy kind of guy. He was speaking to their mind and their intellect. And, they're going, and pa- Apollos was the one who pastored the church as Paul left to plant other churches in other cities. And so they said, no, no, we're not on Team Paul. We're following Apollos. He's our guy. And another thing, no, 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 we're not either one of those. We're about Peter, the guy that messed everything up and the guy that kind of speaks our language. He's kind of a good old boy. Like, we're on Team Peter. And then you had some that I think got it more right than the others but said, hey, we don't follow any human teacher. We follow Christ. You guys are Team whoever. We're Team Jesus. Like, who wants to be on Team Jesus with me, right? But even Paul addresses this as part of the division. So they had it right, like we're following Jesus. But they even used that as a means to push away all the other people in the church. We're not going to get in all these squabbles. We're going to be about who it's really about, about Jesus. But they were not pursuing unity. They were not keeping the ties together. And so um, I want us to look at how um, much this had progressed. So we let's jump to chapter 6. We won't uh, preach this for too long. But the church... Um, or in all their divisions, going, how are we going to deal with all this? And instead of believing the gospel and being a, a community of faith, notice what Paul is addressing. Here's one of the issues that he's getting word of, and he's calling out. This is uh, how far this division had gone. Verse 1. 
of uh, 1 Corinthians 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer the wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. So he said, hey, you are, are so sharply divided that you're going, you can't even settle that among the church and under the leadership of the elders, that you are going and suing your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not to say that we don't need lawyers and court systems at all. That's, to say this, that's not what this is saying. He's just making an indictment of, you're going to the laws of this land, to courts and judges that do not know Jesus, to settle your disputes when you ought to be able to walk in this unity that Christ has purchased for you. It is so progressed that, I mean, they were like trying to get each other thrown into prison over these things. You think our church is messed up, right? I mean, like, my goodness. And so this is so true for us today. Churches that can potentially divide over secondary, non-moral issues. Preferences. So for these people, they were following leaders. And this is, this is so uh, true for us, even in our generation, where podcasts are galore, and we can just kind of follow our guy and our tribe. I mean, this is very, very practical for us, not to get so locked into a certain way of thinking, or a certain style of church, or a certain interpretation of the scriptures, or, or bent, that we just push aside everybody that's not us. Um, and, and we divide over preferences. So this can look like our church against all other churches. So let me just uh, pause. I do not have time to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's so uh, pertinent to where we are, I think, as a culture. So many of us grew up uh, in the church, very maybe in a legalistic, we would probably describe church as kind of, I've heard it called turn or burn, right? Y'all checking with me? How many people grew up in a church you would describe kind of that way? Really fundamental, really legalistic, a lot of us uh, in the room. So a lot of us grew up in that way, and we have oversteered, I think, so much from not wanting to be those people. And we've created this them, divided. So I don't follow, let's just use Apollos. We're on this side now. We're the grace people. <laughs> and we begin to push aside our brothers and sisters that, I mean, may even be wrong. I believe in wrong in some of the interpretation of things. But we create enemies out of it. Or we look at people that see life a little differently than us, and we create us as we could give example after example after example of things. Of I don't want to listen to that guy because he's a little dry or he doesn't dress cool enough or whatever. Like there is a, There's a division that's happening in the body of Christ based upon our preferences that aren't wrong to have, but they're secondary. They're secondary. And he's saying don't be divided over silly things. That can happen in churches against churches, but it can also happen within a local church like what we see here of dividing among generations. Well, you guys, just old, old fuddy-duddies that don't understand and want to do the things this way, or you young whippersnappers, right, <laughs> want to do all this a certain way, and there's just, there's no dialogue, there's no community. We want, listen, we want even our community to reflect this. I don't want around people that aren't in the same stage of life as me. 
I want people that are like me, that see the world like me. I don't want to be around somebody from a different generation or a different socioeconomic strata or a different race. Or, and we divided within the church. Um, we're the truth people or we're the grace people. We believe in community or we believe in mission. Or we, and there's just all these, these, these little rifts. Um, and by God's grace, I, I'm not addressing one thing that I know. Like our church is, is, I think, pursuing godliness. This isn't my soapbox to preach at us. We're just trying to be faithful to the text. But I want the Holy Spirit to highlight our hearts. Is this us? Is there anything that you are dividing from your brothers and sisters within this church, but also every true evangelical church to say, we may have our differences, but those differences do not have to be the point of division. And to be united, we don't have to be all the same. Unity does not mean uniformity. (laughs) But it does mean that we cannot divide over secondary things. So here's why this was happening. And I think if there's any any remnant of that in our church, and if we ask the Holy Spirit, all right, is this true of me? Maybe, just maybe the diagnostic that is true of the church at Corinth would be true of us. Notice with me in in chapter 3 of what's going on here. He's, he's talking about division. He's, he's going to lay out his argument. And we're going to go back and grab some more of this stuff in chapter 1 and 2 in just a second. But here's why they were divided. They're dividing over all these preferences and leaders and all those things. But their division was the result of immaturity. Notice verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, or that which is anti-God, what makes sense naturally. He says, as infants in Christ. And that word infant does not just mean you've been not been saved a long time. Remember, some of these people have been walking with Jesus upwards of five years. This is not just you just met Jesus. This is you're in Christ, you're saved, but you're still a baby. And it shouldn't be that way. Because he goes on and says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. So he said, when I went planted the church, when I was with you years ago, I gave you the ABCs, man. I wasn't trying to shove T-bone down your throat because you're a little infant right and babies need milk so i gave you milk but notice his indictment that was then he goes but even now verse two you're not yet ready implying that they should have been ready to move on and to get go deeper but they weren't ready for it verse three for you are all still of the flesh now remember he's talking to christians for while there's jealousy and strife among you He's going to diagnose. Here's why you guys are divided. Right here. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Meaning you have the Spirit of God in you. But you're not walking according to the Spirit right now. You're walking just like an unbeliever, even though you're not an unbeliever. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So here's a question for us all just to unhitch for a second and ask ourselves honestly. Are you growing? Are you growing? And I don't mean that in some, again, the legalistic, like God loves you more if you do. No, no, no. He loves us fully because of Jesus. We're going to see that today. But are you progressing? There's a tone here in Paul. He's angry and upset, but also just a pastor's heart that's going, I want to move on with you. Like, I want to go deeper with you. And I understood when you just met Jesus that you, don't, you can't wrap your mind around all this stuff. And that was what should have been. That you now were dead in your sins and you had this new birth happen. And you were this new born again believer, but you were a baby. <laughs> but the idea is, is you move from infancy 
to toddlerhood and from toddlerhood to adolescence and adolescence to, to actually where you begin to reproduce and to have other people now that are following Jesus and are new baby Christians as a direct result for you. But now I'm a few years removed and I'm hearing reports that you haven't moved at all. Gosh, and that is so convicting to me. So I look back over the course of my life and just see the progress over my life. And sometimes it's so slow. So if you're here and it's slow, I don't know that it's a fast process. It's a slow one. I'm not asking about that, but I am asking for us all, is are you, um, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, are, does your discipline and your appetite for God match the level of maturity that you ought to be at? So they've listened to a year and a half of Paul's preaching. I mean, if it was just for those year and a half and Apollos dropped the ball when he left, they should have still been past baby food. And yet he's saying there's a condition of your heart that you're not pursuing God. You're not growing. Now, you're genuinely saved. But you're not moving forward. And I see that so often in my life. I see that in, in, in the church. Is that I, think so, I think that describes our church. We, if you're at our family meeting, we uh, looked at some of the statistics of people that have been saved for five years or plus, which is the majority of our faith family here. But the majority of us never read the Bible throughout the week. And again, that's not, a, that's not a shame on you. Maybe it is. <laughs> but in grace, shame on us. That if we really do claim Christ, we're in Him. I think Paul would look at us, some of us, and say, I just wish that you weren't babies still. Like, you don't have the excuse you used to have. Like, if you don't understand, it's okay. But are you progressing? Are you trying? Are you being disciplined? Or are you just checking out going, well, I mean, I'm busy. I don't have time to read the Bible. Or I don't understand it. Instead of saying, well, somebody teach me. Or I'm just so busy. Instead of saying, I'm going to clear out my schedule to pursue maturity. He's writing them saying, I wish we could do that, but I can't. And all these things that I'm calling out in your life, it's a direct result. It's because you're not eating your food. You're spiritually weak and you're all over the place and you're divided and you're angry and you're fighting, quarreling over stuff that doesn't matter because you aren't saturating yourself with what does matter. It's this admonition that you are in Christ. Why? So uh, our African church friends, if you don't know, we partner with an African church plant in our, ta- in our city and they meet here on Sunday afternoons. I'll never forget what my brother said to me uh, months ago when we were praying for the partnership here. And, and we were praying and, and after we prayed, he looked up at me, tears streaming down his face and he said, Pastor, He said, I don't understand why people in the West, talking about here in America, why people don't desire God. He's coming from a context where they have nothing in Africa and they are so zealous for the word. I mean, there's places in our world right now that they don't have access to these scriptures and when they get a hold of them, they will rip out a page of the Bible and just cherish it. And they memorize it and read it over and over again and they they will trade their pages of the, the Bible, because they don't have access to the full ones. And there's just such a hunger for God all over this world. And he's saying, I'm here in the West, and I love America, and there's so much that the church has here to offer the church of the world. But I don't understand why people here that claim the name of Christ do not desire Him more, aren't hungry for Him more. So let me just ask us all, if we really are be- believers in Jesus, is our lives, are our lives matching that, the profession of faith? And we've got to ask, do we really know Jesus then? If there's no desire in you for the things of God, if there's no hatred of sin, if you do not have any love in your heart at all toward God, then 
maybe you just have bought a counterfeit of religion and it's not true genuine life change but if maybe you look at yourself and say no i have glimpses and glimmers of of it but i'm just i'm this is where i'm at i'm a baby christian that should be further along than where i am can i just admonish us all and i'm praying for that through this series but through the fall we're going through um, first timothy looking at the letter of first timothy we're doing a bible study in, on 9 30 in the fall about how to study the bible i just pray that we would not use our babiness as excuses it's okay if it's where you are but get up let's chase hard after jesus let's go to deeper depths i spent longer on that than i should have oh man i gotta get going so he's gonna write to them and said all right here's here's the problem you're divided you're divided because you're not growing your babies that's why you're striving you're having strife together so here's he's going to address those issues um, throughout the first three chapters here so oh man let's go um, number one how does he address the answer of the issue of our pride remember they were divided because they're prideful well, so what does he say to that the answer to our pride is humility formed in light of the cross humility formed in light of the cross verse 13 of chapter 1 is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Uh, for the sake of time, I won't read that. But he basically just has this like, weird moment of going, okay, I baptized that person, but I can't remember if I baptized this person. His point was, is, I'm glad that for so many of you, I didn't do baptism because baptism is important. But he's, I'm glad I'm just known to preach the gospel because that's what ultimate, what's ultimate. Christ is not divided, is his point. Is Christ divided? The answer is an emphatic no, Christ is not divided. So he's rebuking them and saying, why is there divisions among you if you claim to be in Christ? Because Christ is one. And if you're in Christ, you all are one together. There should not be any separation from you. But in our sin, it's what happens. We do divide with one another. But listen, in reality, here's how the scriptures divide us. Because there is divisions in scripture. Notice uh, verse 18 of chapter 1. Here's the only biblical category that's to divide humanity. Not the ones we make, but here's the line. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So he says, there's two people in this world. Those who, when they look at the cross of Christ, see it as foolishness. And that person are those who are perishing. Scripture says that to turn away from God, to not see the cross as what it is, is to be perishing. The wrath of God remaining on us. For in this life, dead in our sins, but for eternity in hell. But you look to the cross, you see it as foolish, you're perishing. But for those who look to the cross and see it for what it is, as beautiful, those are the ones who have the power of God. So I want to ask this the question. Why is that true? Why do some people, why is Paul arguing for this in the middle of this conversation about division. Why do some people look at the same cross and see beauty? And others of it look at the same cross and are just absolutely repulsed by it. Why is that? The Jews said, we would have made a sign. 
That was not the sign we were expecting, that my Messiah would die on a cross. That doesn't look like right, so that's a stumbling block. It's an understatement there. And the Greeks were expecting some military takeover, some philosophy, whatever, but some no-name, what the world saw as a criminal, naked, bleeding, and murdered outside of the city in a torturous way that was reserved for the vilest of criminals. Galatians says and Deuteronomy says that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. They would look at that and say, that's foolish. Like that scene is the hope of the world. Does it make sense? And that is true in our world today. When you start saying God became a man, you've just ostracized the majority of religions and our world population. It's foolish to them. God would become a man? No way. Then you begin to say God, through a brutal murder on a cross, is the only hope to be reconciled to God. And that is beauty, and that's victory. And the world looks at that and says, you all are fools. You're absolutely fools. There's no way that that scene is salvation and redemption. So why then do some of us, those of us who are here and know Jesus, why do you look to the cross and I hope see something more than foolishness? Why do we sing songs about the cross? Why are we about to celebrate the cross in the Lord's Supper here? Why do we sing it as beautiful? We're going to sing a song here in just a second. Oh, the blood. Like Why are we singing a song about blood spilt? Why do you see the cross as beauty? And everybody else in this world, billions of people around this world, see it as foolishness. What's the answer to that? Let me tell you what the answer is not. Verse 26 of chapter 1. He goes, I just want you to make sure, if you are in one of those categories, you Christian believers in the church of Corinth, this is not why you see the cross as beautiful and not folly. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. That's who you are. You are not. (laughs) To bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He says, listen, the uneducated minority, every part, every whatever qualifier you want to do of our world today that has seen his sin and seen the substitute on the cross as Savior and has repented of his sin and put faith in Christ, that person is wiser and stronger than the person over here that our culture says has it all together. The wisdom of this world, all the education, we're not against education here, get education. We're not against power, man, get power. We're not against money, get money. But so many people are looking to those things to save them, and they don't. And all the wisdom of this world piled up here, but that rejects the cross is foolishness. You take all that away, and somebody that has none of that, and but that has the cross and sees the cross for what it is, that person's wise. That person's strong. That's the, the paradox of this gospel that Paul is talking about here. And he says, hey, the fact that that's happening, God's doing that work, there was nothing in you. You weren't of noble birth. You're not much at all. You don't have anything good in you to make that happen. So listen, if you're here and you know Jesus, just listen to me. Is it because you're smarter than your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus? Is it because you figured something out because you heard some answer to some apologetical question and you got the reason that they didn't get and you just figured it out better than the person over there? Or why in the world, listen, are we born where we are 
to hear the gospel. And we're not born over in the Middle East or places where people will be born and live and die and never even hear the name of Jesus. Like, I don't know why I wasn't born there. I didn't do anything about that, right? I didn't, I didn't make my parents be my parents. I didn't make East Tennessee to be the place of my dwelling. Why did God put me here to where from a young age I could hear the gospel? Well, I didn't do anything for that. I, didn't, I wasn't smart, and that's why God saved you. You, didn't, you weren't like a team, and God's like, I want that guy on my team, and he picked you over the other runts and the litter. No, no, no. You had nothing. He's what he says in his Corinthians. He's like, you are so prideful and so arrogant. Do you realize who you were, who you are in light of the holiness of God? He says, you are not, meaning you don't have anything compared to that holy God. Yeah, we have worth and, and significance, but because of our sin and compared to him and our finiteness, we are so insignificant. There's nothing good in us. And our culture says that uh, God deserves to bless us like he owes us salvation and the bible does not have that tone the bible says no no no. he owes us wrath and punishment and the fact that he would do anything other than punish us for eternity in hell is grace is grace and so oh man i don't have time but humility is cultivated when we understand that that grace really is grace you didn't do anything anything to earn god's love for you so he goes on and, and he says, uh, I'll write these down. Uh, th- th- all these notes are online. I'm not going to get through anything because we're almost done. And I'm like still on point one. Oh, my goodness. So download on our app. You can get all these notes. They're all here. But he, he walks them through in chapter one. Be humbled by the choice of God the Father. There's over and over again. You can circle in verses one and two and in verse nine and verse 24 and verse 27 and 29. Over and over and over again that you are chosen. You are called, you are chosen, you are called, you are chosen, you are called. Meaning, you didn't do anything for that. That God before creation, was he made anything in this world, he chose to, to set his affection on you. That's good news. You say, Derek, I don't know how all that works. Like, I don't, I'm all, oh, man, that's the sovereignty of God. And it's not devoid of our responsibility. Because over and over again, there's places here that says, for those who believe in Jesus, and those who call on the name of the Lord. So we are responsible for our sin. And we make a decision to follow Jesus. Absolutely. But we do that because God has pursued us in grace. He chose to set his affection on you. And he says, so when you realize that, that you didn't pick to follow God, he chased after you while you were dead in your sin and made you alive. How could you be so arrogant to divide? Do you realize that you were chosen from the Father? And then he says, um, verse 30 and 31, be humbled by the cross of God the Son. Look at what Jesus has done for you. So he says that that Jesus has, verse 30 of chapter 1, has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness. That Jesus, listen church, is your righteousness. So if you stand before God, pure, you don't stand before God because of any works that you've done. He is your righteousness. If you're in Christ, He has covered your sin debt. He's paid your penalty of sin. Then He says that Jesus has become our sanctification. That not just in the past He saved you from your sin, but He's making you like Jesus right now. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of the Son. He chose you to say, I'm going to make you like Jesus. To the praise of the glory of God of my grace look at the cross and that cross is the power to overcome sin today you can overcome sin in your life church because of what jesus has done that jesus has become a redemption that one day he's going to come again and make all things new and he's going to fix this and he's going to keep us to the end 
He will. He will not lose us. He will not lose us. So be humbled by the choice of God the Father. Be humbled by the cross of God the Son. But be humbled by the calling of God the Spirit. I want to read it. And we're, I'll, I'll try to wind down with this. Verse 10 of chapter 2. These things God has revealed to us. These things are the mystery of the gospel. Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything. Even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. and He is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but it's himself to be judged by no one. You know what he's saying? Guys, listen. If this gospel is beautiful to you and it's not foolish to you, it's because God chose you. It's because Jesus did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. But it's also because the Spirit of God came in and awakened your heart to be able to see it for what it is. Apart from that Spirit, you look at the Bible and you look at the cross and it just, it's just dead. It's a, it's a wall can't see through it to glory you just see it as just ugly weird boring stuff but when the spirit of god comes in and makes you us alive he says you can now begin to see the thoughts of god he says in another place that we now have the mind of christ (laughs) that we can now walk with god and see him for what he is because the spirit is changing us the spirit is doing in us what we can't do for ourselves so if listen if you answered that question earlier that you know what i am a baby christian and i want to move on you know how you do it by the power of the spirit of god through the gospel of god by the sovereign love of the father and if you have answered that question you go you know what i look over the last year of my life and there is progress you can't look and say it's because i'm awesome and you can't go, because I worked really hard, or because I, and maybe there is discipline, and there is work, and there is effort, and there is a free will that we're doing. But we have to look at it, and says, in Paul's writing, this happened so that no one might boast in men, but boast in him. When you see that, yeah, I'm striving, I'm trying, he uses me, it is nothing in me. Paul says, I worked harder than all of you, but it wasn't me. It was the grace of God within me. And so, to all of the division of that church. You listen. You're so immature because you don't understand all of this. Let me remind you who you are. Pride should be destroyed when we see the nature of our salvation. We don't deserve it at all. And he has done for us what's just unthinkable. It doesn't make sense why he would love us this way. But he did. And if that's true, Why in the world would we push aside other people? Would we divide over things that don't matter? Let's be united around Christ. And so we're going to do that uh, through the Lord's Supper uh, this morning. So you'll bow with me and our team will come up and get ready to to lead us. Um, Here's what we want to do. We're going to continue on uh, in worship. So we got a few songs here remaining. We'll get to lunch here soon. But let's rejoice in this great salvation. What's more important than celebrating this gospel together? So um, I just want to remind us all, with every head bowed, every eye closed, just to remove distraction, what it is that we're about to do here. Um, 
is that God has given the Lord's Supper communion as a picture of what we just talked about in the gospel. That Jesus has lived the life, fully human, fully God, the life that we could not live. All our mess-ups, all of our failures, all of our spiritual infancy, and he became that for us on the cross. He overcame, showed us what it was like to be obedient to the Father, and Jesus crawled up on your cross and died your death. The penalty for sin was death, punishment, wrath of God. And Jesus said, I'm going to fully take that on myself instead of on you. It's the doctrine of substitution that you deserve to be cast out from the Father's presence for all eternity, suffering because of your sin and rebellion against God. And you will, if you refuse, to look at the cross and see it as folly. You have to understand, to walk away from the cross and say foolishness is to say, I'm going to take my chances and I'm going to pay for my sin myself. And you can't. Your sin is too great. One sin against an infinitely holy God is deserving of infinite punishment. And if you don't, will not turn, that you will be separated from him forever. So I just implore you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, will you today be the day? I pray that while I'm here, you're hearing the word preached for the first time maybe. God's opened up your eyes to see the beauty of who he is and what he's done. That it would humble you out of any pride that would cause you to walk away. It doesn't make sense why suffering would end in healing. And why seeming defeat would end in victory, but it did. That's the cross of Christ. The wisdom of the world says there's no way that's saving, but the wisdom of God, it was the wisdom of God to save us in that way. So I just ask if you're here, will you today trust Jesus as Savior and Lord? Listen, you can trust Him. The God that loves you that much, that would go to that length to reconcile you back to Himself is a God that you can follow, is a God that you can risk your life for. I just passionately say today, right now, in your seat, turn from your sin. I don't want that anymore. Turn from yourself. Like I don't want to call the shots anymore. I don't want pride to be true of my life. And will you trust in Jesus that He is Savior? Only He can pay the penalty for our sins in full. Nothing that we can do can fix this problem, but only a perfect God man died for what He demanded from us. He provided for us. And that was a holy, spotless, innocent substitute bearing your sin and mine. Will you trust him as that? Will you bow your knee to him as Lord? May you look at the cross and say, it's beautiful. It is not ugly. It's not foolishness. It is wisdom. And it's love. What love, what love, what love that the Father has bestowed upon us all that we might be called children of God. So will you turn today, and if you're here and you don't know Christ, we ask that you not come to the table because it is reserved for those who do know Jesus. But we offer you Jesus today. So come grab one of us right now or come wait till after the service, but do not leave here till you've had your questions answered. Let's walk through that together. We would love to see you make that profession of faith today. But we ask that you abstain from the Lord's Supper. But for those of us who do know Christ, this is open. Even if you're not a member here, if you're a guest with us today and you know Christ, you're welcome to the table um, this morning. But as you take of the bread... As you take of the cup, just remember, this is the body of Christ broken for us. It's the blood of Christ shed for us. We're going to sing this song, Oh, the Blood. And as we come forward now to the table, there's two tables up here at the front. Uh, let's sing this song out together. And then when you come back to your seat, wait, and we'll take of the elements together, okay? So let's sing this song. And right now, let's come forward as you prepare your hearts, confess your sin, thank Jesus for the gospel, and let's take of the elements, or grab the elements and come back to your seat.